Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. And no women, you will wow. Just declaim a few lines. Hello, Shannon Riley here, inviting you to join me every Sunday here on KSEF as I talk Shakespeare on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Every Sunday at 8 and 8, archived here at Kansas 785 Live, as well as on my own website, ShannonJRiley.com. Join me and let's talk a little bit about the bar on KSEF every Sunday, 8 to 8. listening to KSEF, a digital broadcast in Topeka, brought to you by 785 Magazine. Learn more at 785live.com. And now it's time for Shannon Shakespeare Sunday with your host, my daddy, Shannon Riley. Hello and welcome back to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio. I'm Shannon Riley, your host for a half-hour talk about the works of William Shakespeare. My thanks to my dear daughter, Bibi, for welcoming me into the show. If you've been listening to this podcast, you know I am not a Shakespearean scholar. I'm just somebody who really enjoys Shakespeare. And this is our continuing effort to explore all of his works in order as they were written. And we're up to one of his biggies today. We're going to be talking about King Lear. And when you're talking about King Lear, you have to ask yourself the question, which King Lear are you talking about? So you see, there's multiple Lears, and we're going to be talking about these multiple Lears and why they're very important. And what I find most distinctive about Lear is how Shakespeare deviates from his original source material to create a story that is timeless and one of the best plays ever written. So I'm really excited about today's show. We're going to have a great time talking about King Lear by William Shakespeare. Now, this is kind of a long, complicated show, so I want to make sure I have time for it, so I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here and invite my boy, who's waiting off to the side, to tell us what time it is. What time is it, Finn? And now, the Shakespeare Quote of the Week. That's right, Shakespeare's Quote of the Week. King Lear is one of the most quotable plays in all of Shakespeare's canon. It is really, really brilliant in a lot of the things that it says. So I'm going to share some of my favorite quotes with you. For instance, I love this one. This is from Act 4, Scene 1. King Lear says, As flies to wanton boys are we to the gods, they kill us for their sport. It really speaks to his hopelessness at that particular moment. And it really begs the question, why do bad things happen? It's such a great quote. There's also King Lear saying, Nothing will come of nothing. Speak again. That's Act 1, Scene 1. And then there's Edgar, who says in Act 3, Scene 4, The Prince of Darkness is a gentleman. That really speaks to how dark Edgar's character is as well. And of course, there's the most famous quote of all from King Lear, How sharper than a serpent's tooth is it to have a thankless child? I also love the fool's quote, Thou should not have been old until thou had been wise. That's from Act 1, Scene 5. The fool is a great character, an invention of Shakespeare's, and probably his best fool he's ever written, and yet he has no name. I have a lot to say about the fool coming up. I could go on all day about quotes from King Lear, but I'm going to end with this one right here. It's King Lear, Act 2, Scene 4, when he says, Oh, that way madness lies. Let me shun that. 
That way, Madness Lies is really what Shakespeare is talking about here in Lear. This corruption of power, this end of a dynasty. And it's a very important play in Shakespeare's canon. It was written somewhere around 1605 or 1606, maybe. And I'm going to be talking about that, too. The only recorded performance of Shakespeare's King Lear was on St. Stephen's Day, which is the day after Christmas, December the 26th, in 1606 when it was performed before the king himself. And so it's also possible that it was performed many other times. It was certainly it was printed in quarto form in 1608 and then again in 1619. But there's problems with both those quartos. The first quarto seems to have been rushed, seems to be relatively incomplete, and also seems to have some of the wrong cues and the wrong lines for different characters. It's, in short, a very rushed quarto. Quarto number two that came in 1619 is even worse. And so both of these quartos are considered to be pretty, pretty bad. But the version we most want to pay attention to is from the folio. When Hemings and Condell put together the folio in 1623, they included King Lear, and it was a very cleaned up, fresh production. So already we're talking about three different Lears right there by William Shakespeare. It seems that during the course of its life as a play, it was performed many times by Shakespeare's company, and it was slightly rewritten, redone, refurbished, and final story that Shakespeare meant to have put in front of the, an audience is there in the folio edition. But how did it get there? And how did Shakespeare fall upon King Lear? This is in a period, again, it's the Jacobean period. It's when he's really at the most trying to say something to the King of England. Most of his plays at this time are, are a little preachy. They're a little demanding of the king. And yet, there's no evidence that the king ever picked up on that. But certainly, that he could have been sending a message here to the king that you need to maintain your kingdom. It's falling apart. There could be factions within this kingdom that could lead to our downfall. And indeed, that did happen when the Puritans took control over England during the Civil War. Now, we don't know that Shakespeare was making that kind of proclamation, but it sure does feel like that to me. But there could be another more important reason why Shakespeare writes Lear here. You see, it was very popular. There's another Lear we're talking about. And that Lear, we don't know who wrote it. We don't know where it came from. We only know that Shakespeare must have had it. And it even could have been Shakespeare's. So all of these different Lears we're going to talk about on the other side, but I want to make sure we all understand the story of King Lear. So I'm going to do my summary, and again, this is a slightly complicated play, not only because of the story of Lear itself, but the subplot that Shakespeare puts in this play is even more complicated and as equally thrilling as the main plot of King Lear. There's a story within a story here that we want to share. All right, so let's get into the synopsis. Act 1 begins when the entire court is being summoned together by King Lear because he's got an important announcement to make. We first meet the Earl of Gloucester, who introduces his Ill illegitimate son, Edmund, to the Earl of Kent. Now, he says to Kent that this son, though he is a bastard, is my son, and I claim him fully, and I'm proud to have him standing here with me. And Kent talks about what a fine, upstanding young man Edmund is. Now, we interrupt this story when the king arrives, and he immediately has everybody sit down, and he says, you know what I'm going to do is I, I want to retire in my old age. I don't want to wear the crown anymore. It's too much work. But I want to decide who shall succeed me. He has three daughters. Two elder daughters are married, and he has one daughter who is still young and not married yet. He calls for his daughters, who are Goneril, 
Duchess of Albany, married to Albany, Regan, Duchess of Cornwall, meaning married to Cornwall, and their youngest daughter, Cordelia. Cordelia is Dad's favorite, and he makes no bones about it. He loves her the most. So, in order to divide up his kingdom between the three girls, he says, I want you to tell me how much you love me. The two older daughters lay it on They talk about how beautiful he is, how wonderful he is, and what a great father and king he has always been. Nice words. But when he comes to his youngest and favorite daughter, the last but not least, as he says, she says, I love you as I should, as a daughter. No more, no less. He says, speak again. She goes, I have nothing more to say. Nothing will bring you nothing. Say more. But she refuses. She will not overflatter this man. She will not bend over backwards. She says her duty is to her father, and she loves him dearly. But when she marries her husband, her duty will be to him. She is honest, and as a result, she is completely disowned. Two men are there to marry her, by the way. In fact, they've come to plead for her hand. But when the king disowns her, one of them backs away and says, Never mind, without a dowry, I'm not interested. And the king of France says, I would happily take your daughter as my bride. And he banishes her from the kingdom, and off the king of France takes his favorite girl. Now, the Earl of Kent decides he will have none of this, and demands that the king not do this. He needs to rethink his plan. The king flies into a rage, and it is very erratic, and ends up banishing Kent himself telling him that his life will be forfeit if he is found another day in the kingdom. So, off goes his most trusted advisor, Kent, and his favorite daughter, Cordelia. Lear announces that he plans to live alternately with his daughters, Goneril and Regan, and they must provide for his retinue of knights that will also stay with him. They, of course, agree at first, but when they are left alone, they make it very clear that they will be in charge and not their father. Now, we start to go back to the subplot. In Act 2, Edmund is determined to be recognized as the rightful son of Gloucester. And by a trick, he persuades his father that his legitimate brother, Edgar, is dangerous. And he has decided to kill his father so that he can take his lands. He forges a note and lets his father find it. His father reads it, and he can't believe what is true. He says, please, go bring my son to me so that I can talk to him about this. But Edgar goes to Edmund. Dad's going to kill you. He's mad about a letter that he found. You've got to run. If you see him coming, take up a knife and run. And that's exactly what stupid Edgar does. He flees, making him look even more guilty of treason to his father. His father disowns him, just as the king has disowned his daughter. Now, Kent also comes back in Act 2 in exile. He is in disguise. He decides he's got to protect the king, and he decides he's going to be by his side no matter what. So he disguises himself and convinces the king to hire him on into his retinue of knights that stand beside him. In Act 3, the daughters immediately start to disown their father. They start to reject his loud noise, his partying all night long, his rude knights that leave a mess and are loud and disgusting, and they demand that he cut his retinue in half. He's furious at the treatment he receives from one daughter. He turns to the next daughter, who also says, no, the retinue has to be cut even more, down to just a few nights. Meanwhile, Edmund, the nasty little bastard, sets himself up as a messenger between the two sisters and is courting each of them in return. Even though they're married ladies, he's using his great good looks and his power of speech to pit them against each other. But it's really Edmund who wants to get control, and he wants to get control fast. He convinces Cornwall that Gloucester, his father, 
has been communicating with France and will ally himself with France so that France can march in, depose both of the young ladies, and move Lear back into the throne. Terrified that this might come to pass, Gloucester is summoned. He is taken by Cornwall. While they are interrogating him, they blind him. They pull out his eyes and leave him blind. It's incredibly gruesome and incredibly painful. In Act 3, we find our dear king, King Lear, lost and out in a storm. He has nowhere to go, go and a horrible, insane storm has come up. He demands a storm to, to follow his orders, but it refuses. He is in a company of the fool. Now, here's the great thing about the fool. The fool is allowed to say whatever he wants to his master, and he speaks to the king. Tells the king honestly, you are foolish to give up your kingdom. You are foolish to trust these women, and your folly will lead to all of our deaths. And he's right. They take shelter in a hovel, a little barn kind of uh, lean-to, and in that, they find a madman. That madman turns out to be none other than Edgar in disguise, who pretends to be crazy. He's terrified that Gloucester will find him and kill him. Edgar leaves and goes out into the storm, and he comes upon the blind Gloucester. He pretends to be somebody else, talks to his father, and his father asks him to please take him to the Cliffs of Dover, where he can jump and commit suicide. He promises to take him there, but instead, he starts leading him to a very safe, low place where he can't possibly hurt himself. Once they reach the cliffs, he tells him he can jump, but he's really standing on a small mound, and when he jumps, he collapses onto the ground beneath him. Edgar then pretends to be somebody else, a man who watched him jump from tall height, but God has saved him. The wind was underneath him and brought him gently to the ground. God has more plans for Gloucester, and he is not allowed to kill himself. Obviously, he is important, and Edmund stays by his side. Later, Gloucester finds the mad Lear, and they reunite. He kisses his hand, and with filled with joy to once again find his master, Gloucester, now reunited with his son Edgar, dies quietly and peacefully there on the ground. In Act 5, the French forces have indeed arrived, and they are led by none other than Cordelia. Cordelia wants to end this entirely and save her father's life, and she launches an attack against the forces of her sisters, who are led by none other than Edgar. And Edgar has the day. Cordelia is captured, and she's put in a cell with her father, who is barely holding on to reality. They see no way out of this, and so he sends a message to the prison guards to immediately kill both of them, and they hang Cordelia. In the meantime, Edmund lets it be known that he's been shacking up a bit with Goneril, finding out that his wife has been unfaithful. Albany disowns her. She goes off stage and commits suicide. Edgar arrives. He is determined to finish this fight, and he demands a trial by combat with Edmund. Edmund and Edgar fight, and Edmund kills Edgar. Edgar, lying dying, confesses all of his misdeeds and orders Cordelia to be released from prison. However, Cordelia is dead. She's been hung, and the king walks out carrying her lifeless body in his arms. Albany and Edgar are left to reorganize the kingdom as Lear himself sobs and dies holding his lifeless daughter. It is a brutal, tough play, and we're going to have a great time talking about it on the other side of this break. So stay with me, and we're going to talk about the different Lears after these messages. (laughs) 
right here is where I would say now for a brief word from our sponsors, but I'm just sitting here waiting for you to put words in my mouth. So for advertising opportunities, go to 785live.com. Welcome back to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio 75Live.com. It's a pleasure to have you all here with me. I'm Shannon Riley, and today we're talking about King Lear, easily one of Shakespeare's greatest masterpieces. It has been celebrated for over 400 years, but in truth, in Shakespeare's time, it found very little audience. In fact, it was probably very seldom done, not because it wasn't well-written, it was probably seldom done because the audience didn't like the ending. And the ending is a very big part of why it wasn't performed for almost two centuries. It was kind of relegated to the back. When it was performed, they changed the ending to a happier ending. And you can kind of see why it's a bit of a downer. In some ways, I think this is Shakespeare's most devastating tragedy. If you think about it, Hamlet's a tragedy, but at the end, justice is restored. The people who had to pay for the death of the king have been met. Romeo and Juliet, it's a tragedy. But the kids who die, die for love and are dead together, and there's almost a bitter sweetness to it. This play is devastating on every level. You have the king's daughters are dead. The king is dead. He's lost everything, all out of his pride. You know, Shakespeare's name itself has become an adjective. We will say things like, oh, this is tragedy, this is so Shakespearean. Somebody's life that takes a tragic turn is known to take a Shakespearean turn. And it's because of plays like this, and this, I think, is the biggest tragedy of them all. So, where does it come from? Now, I've talked before about Shakespeare and his sources. He only wrote three original plays. This is not an original story. As a matter of fact, it was based, like a lot of his plays, on the Chronicles of England, Scotland, and Ireland by Raphael Holinshed. And that was published in 1587. Shakespeare uses this tome a lot. He goes back and forth to this book for his histories, for anything dealing with English past. And definitely, this is a play that fits into that category. But Holinshed himself found the story of Lear in a much earlier version called the Historia Regium Britannae by Geoffrey of Manmouth. Now, he tells the 12th century story of a king by the name of Lear, L-I-E-R. Lear's a mythical character in the 12th century. He is known to be a, a prehistory king of England. In fact, his story dates all the way back to 923. So this idea of a king before the Romans even discovered Britain, this king who led this prehistory group of English people by the name of Lear. Historians are divided whether or not there ever really was a Lear. There could have been, but the story itself was very well known and kept alive by oral tradition and was finally written down by Geoffrey in the 12th century. And the story is the same but different. In this original Lear story, you have Lear dividing his kingdom between his three daughters. We even have their names, Goneril, Cordelia, and Regan. And the country is divided between the three of them. Again, he disowns Cordelia, who marries the king of France and moves off to France. Actually, he's called the king of the Franks. 
In any case, they come back at the end. They do battle with the sisters, but in the original source story, they win. And Cordelia immediately puts her father back up on the throne. And she succeeds him to take over his rule after he dies. It's a happy ending in the original story. A happy ending in this 12th century story. So that's the first, we'll call it the original, Lear. And that's the story that's picked up and put into a play that's called The True Chronicle History of the Life and Death of King Lear. This play is published in 1603 by an author we do not know. The author is not named. What is very important about this is that this play, this Lear number two, was in Shakespeare's hands. He read it. He had it. So the question is, where did he get it and why did he write his version of Lear? Here's the thing I want to put across. Remember I said that there was no royalty in these days. There was no copyright issue. Playwrights or poets who wrote plays and had them in a company, that company would buy that play and hold that play if it was successful, and they would perform it over and over again. But when they decided they were done with it, they would publish it, sell it at the booksellers, and people would buy and read plays much like they buy and read novels today. But once you did that, if another playing company bought your play... They could simply go and do it. They could perform it the next day. So you had to be ready to let go of your piece when you published it. And it's possible that Shakespeare's company was willing to let go of King Lear very early in these first two quartos that they let loose. It's also possible that they knew that that Lear was a substandard Lear. And they could make a little money off of it. But in the meantime, Shakespeare was improving and building upon his new Lear. But it's this unknown Lear, this uh, Lear that was written by an anonymous poet. You see, we happen to know that Shakespeare had this play because so many of the scenes are similar. The construction is very similar. And you can see that Shakespeare had this play. Some people think, maybe Shakespeare is this anonymous author. Maybe he wrote an original version of this and then ended up taking it and building a new play. It's possible. But I doubt it. Why would they publish it? Particularly since there is a massive difference between this Lear and Shakespeare's Lear. Now, Lear number two that I'm talking about here has the original happy ending. But it has absolutely none of the subplot in Shakespeare. Gloucester's story with his two sons, Edgar and Edmund, are nowhere to be found. Cordelia hanging nowhere to be found. Kent being kicked out of the kingdom, nowhere to be found. And most importantly to me, the fool, nowhere to be found. I think Shakespeare bought this play at a bookseller. There's evidence that he loved to go and buy as much writing as he possibly could. He was a writer and he was absorbing things as much as he could to continue to write his own plays. I think he bought this play and became obsessed with it. Again, it was a popular story in Shakespeare's time. So he bought this play, became obsessed with it, and decided he was writing his own version of the story. He was going to make it bigger and better than it was before. And it was going to end harshly. He does add these brilliant touches. The whole story of Gloucester being blinded and his son pretending to be mad and taking him to a cliff to commit suicide, which he does not do, is brilliant and it is captivating and it tells the story 
uglier in a different way. This blindness of this leader, Gloucester, his inability to see his own end, just like Lear can't see the end that he is putting in front of himself by dividing his kingdom three ways. The story is magnificent. And by adding the side story, he invents a villain that is unlike any other Shakespeare villain. We're going to talk about him when we get to Othello because Iago is so much like Edgar. And Edgar is truly villainous, much more villainous than any villain we've come across in any of Shakespeare's play. Richard III pales in comparison because Edgar comes off seeming so sweet, so kind, so attractive, so beautiful. As a matter of fact, he even says, the Prince of Darkness is a gentleman. He is a man who uses his tongue and his ability and brilliant looks to gain ground, to gain control. And it would have worked. He could have become King of England if his half-brother Edmund hadn't killed him in a duel at the end of the play. It is a terrifically evil character that Shakespeare creates. And it's nowhere in the source material. I, I think maybe this would be a great subject for a podcast at a later date, is to talk about all the plays and the references Shakespeare used to write them and how he differed in them. But here you have a very clean example because the original source story still exists and this play by an anonymous author still exists. You can see the twists and turns that Shakespeare makes in this play. But then he does an amazingly even more brilliant thing. And that is, he introduces the fool. The fool, this guy who has no name, and yet he speaks directly to the king and to the audience. This fool, who is considered lowly and beneath everybody, has clearer vision, understands where they're going, predicts that it will end in death, even his own. And he does. He is killed off stage. Some people think that the killing of the fool off stage is a cheat. And it is horrible. I'd rather have seen a scene where it happened. I wish we could have seen that final moment for the fool. But we don't see it. It happens off stage. But a lot of people believe because believe that it didn't happen because the role of the fool was being played by the same actor who played Cordelia. And since she was coming back into the play, they had to take the fool out. The two of them never share the stage. So it's very possible that Shakespeare intended for this role to be played by the same actor. And if it is, think of that and how brilliant that is. He takes his favorite daughter's, the character being the favorite daughter of Lear, turns her into a man who express honesty and truth to the king, and he still does not see it, and then returns her back to try to bring full circle to her father the story of his life. And yet she's flawed. She can't stop the circle from happening. The die is cast, predestination or whatever you want to call it. Lear is going to die. Shakespeare shuns this happy ending. He shuns the happy ending that exists in the original source material and in this other play simply because he knows a more potent story is in the tragedy. The more important lesson to his audience, to his king, to everybody who hears it, is stupidity, folly, will lead to your destruction. That the choices you made are going to haunt you. And if you don't make proper choices, it can lead to your downfall. 
He doesn't want a white knight to come riding in at the end to save Lear. He wants Lear to illustrate that when you hang yourself on your convictions, you're gone. You're done. Unless you're willing to admit you made mistakes, admit that you need to change, admit that you need to move backwards and fix the things you left behind, you are doomed to ruin. This is the message that Lear is saying to its audience, and Shakespeare was trying to drive this home. It was a much more potent message this way than it would have been if Shakespeare allowed Lear and Cordelia to live at the end of the play. I think this is why, to this day, this play is so powerful. And it wasn't until later audiences, about in the 18th, early 19th century, we started to see Lear being performed again with the original ending that Shakespeare had intended. Now think about that. For about 200 years, they wouldn't do the play that Shakespeare intended because it was too much of a downer. It was too dark. But in the 19th, and certainly now the 20th and 21st century, we appreciate the ending for what it is. We appreciate the power of the story for what it is. Which illustrates to me how much Shakespeare was ahead of his time. How much Shakespeare was writing to an audience that he didn't even know. But we appreciate it now, over 400 years later, far more than they did when it was written. This is truly a remarkable play, and a play that you've got to treat yourself to. If you have not seen Lear before, okay, get a big stack of hankies, be ready to cry, but go watch it. You've got to see this play. We've got about three, maybe, yeah, about three or four main big plays left to talk about before we go off into his later plays, which are later called romances, and were teen-written, as in fact, at least co-written with a poet he handpicked to succeed him by the name of John Fletcher. And we're going to get to those plays. But right now, we're at some of the greatest meat in Shakespeare's canon, and you really need to take a bite of it. There's a lot of great leers out there. Patrick Stewart does one that I very much like. But I think my favorite is the one that features Sir Ian McKellen. It's a really great version. I actually had the chance to direct the show for Topeka Civic Theater, and I'm very, very proud of our production. And that's about all the time we have for Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. I want to thank you all for tuning in, and come back next week as we talk about another monster in Shakespeare's canon. And I do mean monster when we visit Macbeth. See you next week, and remember, keep it barred to the bone. Bye-bye.